Chris Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Nailers Netter. I am Abby Bayford, Director of Institute at the Academy Transformation Trust. I'm really excited about today, which I'm calling Nailers Natter with a twist. As you know, our passion is having a natter with teachers. And today we're discussing teaching through a slightly different lens of someone who isn't a teacher, but who has extremely rich insights about what it's like for children and young people in the classroom. So my guest today is John Simpson, who is an autism training consultant working for the Inspiration Autism Training. And today for our Nailers Natter listeners, John is going to draw on his experiences of having autism and the impact that being undiagnosed at school had, um, hopefully offering our listeners a really rich insight into what we can do practically to support children and young people with autism. So John, it's a pleasure to have you joining us. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too. Really excited. And for the Nailers Natter listeners um, tuning in, I've heard John speak before and I'm really, really excited to be able to bring that from a conference to this podcast. So John, if it's okay with you, I'd really like to explore um, with you three key areas um, in the podcast. First one, your time as a child and young person in mainstream education and as undiagnosed and autistic. Then I thought we'd move on to your life as an adult, which I know has been, in your own words, incredible, as you've embarked on a journey of finding out about autism and self-awareness and achieving success in education as a mature student. And I thought it was only right if we finished um, reflecting on this sort of COVID world we're living in. And I think it's really important we touch upon the challenges COVID-19 presents for children and young people with autism. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds fantastic. Great. Okay, so we'll kick start with, tell me a bit about yourself um, and some of the fantastic things you've achieved already. Okay, uh, so I'm 34 years old. I live in Solihull in the West Midlands and I was diagnosed as being autistic at the age of 16. And that diagnosis actually didn't come uh, through education. Um, I was about to take my GCSEs when I developed a very serious mental health condition, uh, which led to me being admitted to hospital. And whilst I was in hospital being treated for the mental health condition I was suffering with, I was also diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Um, And my initial reaction to being told I was autistic wasn't great. I kind of went through a very long period of denial um, until really I reached the age of 20. Um, And then two things happened that really did transform my life. Um, Firstly, I began working um, as a uh, support assistant in a residential residential, uh, unit for autistic adults. And secondly, I began delivering training to groups in health, social care, education providers and autism charities, talking about my experiences of being autistic and trying to help staff, parents, families and individuals to live better, happier and more fulfilling lives. Um, 
recently i've also uh, started providing one-to-one consultancy for autistic people uh, families and basically anyone else who, who who would like that and you can find out more about some of the work i do at my website which is inspirationalautismtraining.com so please feel free to come and have a look um if you feel that's something you'd like to do um over the past 10 years I spent a year working as an independent listener at an autism specific residential school in Birmingham, um, working with uh, students uh, of kind of secondary school age between 11 and 16. And then in 2013, I decided that I wanted to have another go at education, as we're going to discuss uh, in a few minutes. My time at school was not enjoyable um, and it left me basically not wanting to go anywhere near a school or college um, as a student at least ever again um, but by 2013 I'd kind of learned a lot about myself I feel like I developed a huge amount as a person and I went back to my local FE college um, to take uh, an access to higher education course which is like a, a, a kind of A-level equivalent course for mature students and I then uh, moved away from home the following year to study a politics degree at the University of Manchester and for a variety of reasons, which hopefully we can sort of move on and talk about later, that was too difficult for me. I was doing too many new things at once. Um, and so I unfortunately developed uh, mental health complications again and returned home. And then the following year, I went back uh, this time to the University of Birmingham, uh, where I commuted from home rather than moving away as I did the year before. And although it was challenging, it was a, a far more successful process. And about 18 months ago, I graduated from the University of Birmingham with a political science BA. Congratulations. That's amazing. John. Really is. And, it, and it's really clear to me that although you've navigated a really challenging path in life, I'm delighted to hear that you found a love for learning again. Um, that makes me really happy as a teacher. Um, but also you've got such a strong self-awareness of what it is you need now in order to cope and thrive as well, which is lovely to hear. I know from um, hearing you speak before, although you talk about your very specific needs, you make an important statement about the fact that everyone is different. Can you, can you sort of tell me why this is an important statement to make? Yeah, so I think that as autistic group of, of individuals, and I think that, that although it's something that most of us that work in the field know very well, it's something that perhaps those with less of a knowledge realise perhaps at times. Um, and I think it's important because what I don't want to do is give the impression in any of the work that I do that somehow following the path that I've chosen myself is going to be successful for every single autistic person mm -hmm. so whilst i hope that the stories that i tell and the points that i make the things i suggest will be helpful um i don't want people to think that there's kind of a prescriptive way to to, to achieve success as an autistic person yeah. um each each person's path is their own to to take and to choose and 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 i'm not by any means saying that that everyone needs to do or should do what i've done and i also think it's important because I've never seen any real correlation between kind of what I call someone's intellectual ability and their overall happiness. And what I mean by that is that some of the happiest autistic people that I've ever met 
have been those people living in residential care, but who were living the lives that they felt they wanted to and whose needs were being met. Um, some of the most angry, confused, frightened people that I've ever worked with, and I'd absolutely include myself um, uh, in, in this at points in my life, have been those where people think or, or know that we have a very high level of intellectual ability, but whose needs and wants aren't being met. Um, and it's very dangerous, I think, that sometimes you might look at someone and think that, oh, they're only mildly autistic. And sometimes that's, that's a view that people hold of me. And that may be true kind of 95% of the time, but as my parents and my friends will all tell you, the kind of 5% of the time when I'm struggling for whatever reason, there's nothing mild about how I am or my, my autism whatsoever. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a very important distinction to make, um, sort of to start any work that you do in autism, whether it's training, consultancy, whatever. What I, I'm reflecting really on my experience of, of being a Senko. Um, yeah. And I haven't been a Senko for uh, about seven years now. But I yeah. myself have been guilty of using the language of this person has mild autism. And I've, I've contextualised that in terms of thinking, well, OK, autism is a spectrum and so on. Would you, are you advocating perhaps that people shouldn't use that sort of language? Or what, what would you advise to the Nailers Nast? Natter listeners who are listening now thinking, you know, how can I best describe someone's yeah. autism? I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a question that I approach from a theoretical perspective. I actually kind of think more sim simply than that, which is treat everyone as an individual. Yeah. Um, and one of the issues that I had going through mainstream school is that people assumed that because the level of academic work that I was producing was really good, mm. that therefore there weren't profound needs. And, and, and I guess that's, that would be the kind of the message that I, the way I would kind of distill it is don't assume that the quality of someone's academic work or the, the presentation, the, 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 the impression that you get of them in the classroom or in the playground is necessarily reflective of their whole life. Mm. Um, and so what, one of the things that I often talk about in, in terms of my parents was that, that for them, one of the things they found most confusing was how different my behaviours were at home and at school. Yeah. And there was kind of, they'd arrive at parents' evening and they'd have described to them this incredibly quiet, well-behaved child whose work was always outstanding. And this wasn't the boy they were seeing at home. Um, and they kind of assumed that somehow this meant that they were doing things wrong because they were seeing the outbursts, the anger, the frustration that actually I was experiencing at school but didn't have an outlet for. I see. And so whether it's... Uh, my, my, what I would advise to, to people is actually to look holistically. Don't, don't, narrow your, don't narrow your opinion of a child's ability simply based on the interactions that you have with them as a result of your job. Try and think holistically about the person as an individual and about how they interact with different challenges, with different environments and with different people. That's fantastic advice, John. If we can stick with the theme of school then, I'd like to take yeah. you back to um, your experience at school and wondered if you could share with the Nailers Natter listeners um, what it was like being an undiagnosed child with autism. There, there were several issues. The first of which, as I've touched upon already, was the problem in a way of being seen as very able. 
So my education from the age of four up to 16 was in mainstream comprehensive settings. And at no point did I ever receive any diagnosis or additional support. Um, socially, it was problematic because I didn't know how to make friends. And so I mimicked without ever understanding. And, and the way I kind of refer to it is the way that I treated socializing and friendship building was a bit like copying someone else's exam answers. If you're lucky, they'll have written the correct answers, so you'll at least be doing it right. But you won't know why the answer was correct, and you getting it right is entirely dependent on someone else getting it right. Um, and that's kind of how I went through kind of friendship and socializing. I didn't actually understand how to do it, so I just copied as best I could what other people did. So I ended up really looking like kind of an inferior version of them, and it wasn't really a good way to make friends. I found the sensory experience of school overwhelming, the loud noise, the fire alarms, the, 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 the constant changing of, of all things going on around me. And I found personal organization really challenging. In fact, at my prize giving in year three, uh, my head teacher awarded me sort of slightly, slightly in good humor because I was also winning another prize. But I still, my parents found it especially amusing that he said, and if we could award a prize for the messiest desk in our school, John would also win that as well. Um, so, so organization and kind of um, and, and, and that side of education was always really challenging. But when it came to the, the content, the academic content of the work, totally different. I, I always, in, in many of my subjects, was achieving marks towards the top of my class, which I've come to reflect was kind of a mixed blessing. Because on the one hand, you know, achieving academic success is, is, is fantastic. And I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing well at school. But it did hide a lot of the difficulties that I was having in my kind of social and emotional development. I guess that kind of um, really reinforces this idea that, you know, academic performance cannot be a sole metric when we are identifying students in need of support and intervention. I'd agree. Um, and I don't think this is particularly just related to autism, I think, yeah. in areas such as mental health as well. Okay, so... I think this links quite nicely, actually, because when I heard you speak last time, you spoke about something called the uneven, spiky developmental profile. Did I get that right? Sort of. Close enough. <laughs> I tell you what, can you tell the listeners what it is and yeah. do a much better job than I can? So it tends to be referred to as kind of either the uneven developmental profile or the spiky developmental uh, profile. Oh, I've made a new term. You have, you have. I mean, it doesn't really matter whichever, whichever does the job perfectly well. Um, I guess really it's kind of a reflection that for autistic people, skills can develop at vastly different rates. So in my case, as I've already said, academically, from a very early age, I was doing really well. Um, I, I was able to learn to read very young, adding up um, mathematics, um, a whole variety of different kind of academic areas where I was able to learn very quickly. And I tended, and to be fair, still do, even as an adult, I tend to do best in situations which are very prescriptive, where in the example of school, a teacher would come into a classroom, would put a, a series of questions or instructions or readings on a whiteboard, and you'd kind of work through them to a kind of given solution or to a given outcome where you'd hand in a piece of work. And my learning in that kind of structured environment was, was really good. 
where I struggle is in those skills that actually we don't think of as needing to actively teach as much. I kind of call them the, the social, the behavioral, the developmental skills. Um, and, and these tend to be things that aren't necessarily taught in the classroom. Um, and, and they're much harder because we're expected to kind of just intuitively know them and learn them by watching others and reflecting our, on our own mistakes. So these tend to be things like knowing how to behave in different contexts, for instance, the fact that, that m most students, without ever being explicitly taught, kind of know that you act differently in the classroom when the teacher's outside than when they're in the room. Um, or understanding that different conversation topics are appropriate for different audiences, so that the 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 slightly you know the conversations that you have say as a group of 13 year old lads out in the yard aren't appropriate when you're having dinner uh with the family um and and both your grandmothers you know now these these are things that, that often we kind of think of as really obvious especially when you're looking at a student such as myself who was doing fine academically yeah but it was those those skills that that were never explicitly taught that i was just kind of expected to pick up they were the areas where I struggled massively and there started to be this real uneven balance between what I was achieving, depending on the specific skill that I was being asked to, to demonstrate. So, I mean, you've just unpicked really the impact that autism can have on a person's intuitive learning. And um, what I'm wondering is how best can we help teach the intuitive bits of learning to children and young people with autism? I think firstly, it's being honest enough to know that, you know, we're unlikely to necessarily know these things before they occur. So it's impossible for any educator to actively predict the particular situations where students are going to really struggle. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm firstly going to give you kind of a couple of examples from my own life Thanks and then then speak more generally about kind of what teachers and, and support staff can do. So when I was 12 years old and um, my little brother Andrew was eight, and that's quite important, and we'll come back to, to that as an issue uh, and, and, and why that's important in a moment. As a family, we went up uh, to Blackpool to visit my grandmother who lived up there at the time. And uh, she prepared a roast dinner for us. And I'm not going to lie, it was awful. Um, <laughs> The potatoes were lumpy, the meat was tough, the gravy was too thin. There are several mystery vegetables to this day. I have no idea what they were. John, John, uh, that sounds like my Sunday dinner every week. Oh dear. I'm a terrible cook. But anyway, go on. I, I feel very sorry for you in that case. Um, <laughs> so so we're, all, we're all sat around the table kind of eating this meal, which is not very good. And my grandmother asked the question, how's the food, everyone? my mom and my dad and my little brother, who's four years younger than me, but isn't on the spectrum, all instinctively knew that the right answer, not the truth, but the right answer was, oh, it's lovely, Irene. Oh, it's great, Grandma. I'm really enjoying this. And then she asked me, and I went full Gordon Ramsay's F word <laughs> on, my poor, on my poor grandmother's cooking. Um, now, it's very important to note that this was not because I wanted to be naughty. It wasn't because I wanted to cause a scene. It wasn't because I was testing boundaries. All of the reasons why you might think that kind of a young teenage person might, you know, say something that's so obviously socially inappropriate. But it wasn't any of those, actually. It was much more simple than that. 
Mm. I've been brought up to always tell the truth. And those those teachers or support staff that are listening now who, who, who have young children of their own, I'm sure that's one of the first lessons that you've taught them is always tell the truth. But of course, what you actually mean when you say that is always tell the truth, but for goodness sake, work out when to lie. Because, <laughs> because you, in that... You get that put on a t-shirt. Uh, do you know what? As long as I get 10% of the royalties, I'm absolutely <laughs> fine with that. You're on, you're on. Um, so I think it's really important, firstly, as, as educators, that we take a step back and we don't automatically ascribe the motivations that we might think that other children might have for a particular behaviour. You know, don't always assume that it's about attention or that it's about being naughty. It might simply be one of those unwritten social rules that because of our uneven developmental profile that I spoke about earlier, we don't understand as well as our peers. In addition, one of the problems with kind of intuitive learning or, or the lack of intuitive learning was that I, did, I didn't understand how and why um, teachers managed their classrooms in the way that they did. So sometimes over break time or dinner time, there'd be a fight and maybe five or six of the people in my class would be involved in it. Um, but the teacher, when they walked into the classroom, they could tell that there'd been an issue, a disturbance, a fight, but they wouldn't know exactly which students had and had not been involved in mm. that disruption and so they would tell the whole class off now the teacher knew that not everyone in the classroom had been involved but because they couldn't work out exactly who was and who wasn't involved they just told the whole class off mm. and all of the students in that classroom really knew what the teacher was doing even those that were much less academically able than me but I didn't and so I assumed that I was personally being disciplined for something that I knew I hadn't done mm. and again that made me incredibly angry um, and frustrated because I didn't have that kind of intuitive learning to just know why the teacher is managing the classroom in the way that they were. And so thinking uh, back to your, your original question about kind of how best we can help teach the intuitive bits of learning to children and young people, the first uh, suggestion I'd make quite simply is pick your battles and pick mm -hmm. your moment. Not every situation needs addressing. Um, and it's really important that you don't kind of overwhelm students by seeking to correct every time they say or do the wrong thing, because that will be exhausting for both them and for you very quickly. It's really important in those situations where it has affected a child's ability to learn or a child's ability to function as part of their peer group that you do debriefing, but it doesn't have to be done at the point where the incidents occurred. Um, one of the things that I learned from working uh, with autistic adults who had kind of associated behavioural and learning difficulties was that often the best thing to do at the point where um, someone is having a meltdown um, is to make sure that everyone's safe, both yourself as the support worker, um, the individual themselves and their peer group and their, the, the friends around them, but then to allow people space, allow their stress levels to reduce before you then get to the point of kind of addressing why a particular incident or issue has occurred and you have to be very thorough in how you help someone do this debriefing so if my parents had just said to me after the blackpool roast dinner incident as it's still referred to in our house um if they just said oh it was inappropriate you've upset your grandma you shouldn't have said that i would have kind of known it but i wouldn't have understood it 
and so my parents kind of had to go through in, in, in quite excruciating detail, really, the fact that my grandmother was an elderly lady, that she'd got out of bed early, um, she'd, she'd, she'd gone out in the rain, she'd got, got the bus, she'd gone into, into the town centre, she'd been around lots of shops to buy all the ingredients for this dinner, she'd come back home, she'd spent hours, too long in fact, in front of the, the oven kind of preparing this meal. And that therefore for me to then tell her that it was rubbish, even though it was the truth, was clearly the wrong thing to do. So pick your battles, make sure it's an issue that actually needs resolving. Do it at a point where both you as the staff member and also the, the child themselves are relatively calm. And that's usually not at the point where the incidents occurred. And explain the situation, go through it piece by piece so that that person can actually get a full understanding of what was inappropriate or what they shouldn't have done. And then suggest a solution. There's no point just telling someone that the way they behave was inappropriate and expecting them to kind of intuitively know how to behave differently next time. So solutions are also really important. Having that conversation of, okay, next time this particular thing happens, whether it's um, something in a lesson that you don't understand or whether it's falling out with a mate at break time, how are you actually going to positively deal with that next time? Um, and that's, that's kind of how I would deal with the issues around intuitive learning so important and I'm reflecting on a, a Nailers Natter podcast that was released last week by um, Tom Bennett where he talks about behavior and how it needs to be explicitly taught you know as a curriculum in its own right um, and what you're saying here is really reaffirming that message I would say sometimes I hear um, rhetoric about autism where um, communication and interaction is presented as almost a fait accompli that, you know, autistic people with autism just can't do it, that, you know, they're always going to find it challenging. And I worry about those sorts of fixed attributions there, because like you said, if someone hadn't have explained to you that the Blackpool, Blackpool gate, as I'm going to call it, you would have never known. What's your view on that? I think there's a difference between understanding that as autistic people, we sometimes communicate in atypical ways and sort of throwing a blanket over us all and saying that we all can't communicate. Mm. Um, so there are several issues that I kind of like to unpick with that. Firstly, is the difference between what I call expressive and receptive communication. And put simply, that's kind of the difference between how well we can speak and how well we can pr process and act on the things that are said or communicated back to us. Um, and so in my instance, my expressive communication, as hopefully is kind of coming across today, is pretty good. You know, yeah. I can speak at a relatively high level. I can communicate my needs, certainly when I'm not stressed. And I think we'll, we'll talk about stress in a few minutes. Um, but certainly when I'm not stressed, I can communicate my needs relatively well. But my receptive communication, my ability to understand and act upon what's being said to me is not at that level. And so one of the most bizarre things in a way that I, I sometimes say to people, but actually I think is really important in, in, in forming good friendships and relationships is to speak at me or to me or with me at a lower level to that which I communicate with. Um, Added to that, I have a processing delay. So again, one of the things that, that I find really helpful is if after people have asked me a complex question or given me a complicated instruction, if they allow me time to process what it is that, that they've said and act upon it. And then sort of when I'm 
out and about, whether it's in a work setting or with friends, I take a lot of what I call socializing breaks. And the way I say this kind of suggests, or, or people who don't understand it can think, oh, does that mean you get fed up with your friends and you know you don't want to spend time with them? And it, it's not that at all. Being sociable, having verbal conversations, whilst it's something that I've got a heck of a lot better at, will never come naturally to me. It's always something that I really have to think about. And even though I absolutely love going out with mates and it's absolutely fantastic thing that, that I do and I, I, I enjoy it, it, it's hard work. I don't, I don't have what other people kind of, or, or what I would refer to as kind of social autopilot. So I'm constantly yeah. aware of myself, um, aware of, of making sure of kind of the fact that I'm struggling at times to understand body language and facial expressions. And what this means is that sometimes when I'm out after an hour or an hour and a half at maybe a pub or a club or a house party back in the days when you could do that, of course, mm. um, that the, 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 I become very tired. I become, you know, it becomes quite exhausting. And so what I've learned to do is kind of step aside is to go outside for half an hour, play on my phone, look up football statistics or, or one of my other intense interests um, and just allow myself to kind of recharge my social batteries. And what that means is actually I can have a really enjoyable time socially with friends, family, workmates, whatever, without becoming overwhelmed by something which, even though I enjoy it immensely, will always be a challenge for me. And then two kind of sensory issues that I can have around communication is firstly that I can have problems filtering out kind of what I refer to as non-essential noise. So in a crowded dining hall or train station or gymnasium, um, it can be really hard for me to focus on what the person next to me is saying um, because I can't kind of filter out all the noise uh, that's going on around me in a way that many other people who aren't autistic can do without ever really thinking about it. And the last piece of advice that I would give, uh, and, and for some educators this will feel completely counterintuitive, but I think it's really crucial, is don't demand eye contact. Um, I find eye contact and I find trying to interpret people's facial expressions and body language really difficult. Yeah. And so if you're asking me to have a verbal conversation, which is also a challenge at the same point as trying to make eye contact and kind of work out what it is that you're thinking and feeling from your body language and facial expressions, mm -hmm. it just multiplies the challenge that I'm facing in holding that verbal conversation. So don't assume that because a pupil isn't listening or, or um, isn't making eye contact that they're not listening. It might just be that they're looking elsewhere to enable them to focus on the words that you're speaking. Um, and so please don't demand eye contact from those students for whom it's difficult. Mm, that's a really important insight. And, and thinking about, you know, situations that can compound stress, um, just reflecting on my own experience of teaching children and young people with autism, I found that um, that's, that stress spectrum is quite difficult sometimes to anticipate. So something that I might personally position low down on the spectrum of what I find stressful could evoke um, the same response to stress as something I might put quite high up on that spectrum, for example. How, how have you encountered stress? And I guess what advice would you give to teachers? So that because I'd imagine everyone's stress continuum is different. So what can we look out for and what can we do? So stress 
actually has similar effects on everyone, whether or not we're autistic. Mm. So impaired decision-making, one of the main sort of symptoms of, of being stressed happens whether or not you're autistic. And we all know this, you know, how many times have you fallen out with a friend or a, or a family member because you've said something or done something in the heat of the moment and then you look back sometime later and you think, oh my goodness, why on earth did I say that? Or mm. why on earth do I do that? And the reality is that, as with anyone, when you get stressed, your judgment is impaired. Um, you get what is commonly referred to as kind of the fight, flight or freeze response. The fact that, 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 that you may act in, in, in ways other than you would normally, would normally do. And there's also that kind of physical pain, you know, the, 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 the headaches, the dry mouth, the, the tightness in the stomach. Um, and these occur whether or not someone's autistic. They're just kind of normal parts of being stressed. The difference for many autistic people is the frequency and the intensity with which we experience that stress. Um, so the, the example I kind of use when I'm doing training is I ask people to think of something that's, that's really stressful for them. And it might be going into hospital for an operation or a job interview or arriving at the airport and finding that you've left your luggage in the taxi or, or, or anything that in most people would, would generate a high level of stress. And then what I ask them to do is to imagine that level of stress instead being applied to something which to most people would seem as mundane um, as coming down to breakfast and finding there are no cocoa pops in the cupboard or getting on the bus to school and finding that every seat is taken and therefore that you've got to stand in a really confined space and you can't listen to your, your, the, uh, your music in the way that you normally would or arriving for your geography lesson and finding that your favourite teacher, um, who, who really understands and works well with you, is unexpectedly phoning sick and that you've got to work with a different teacher that you've never met before. All of those things that for most students would just be, you know, unpleasant or difficult start to the day, can in autistic students bring about the same level of stress as a job interview or a hospital of operation or uh, lost luggage at the airport. So the stress that you're seeing in, in your autistic students is not kind of some alien concept that's totally different to, to, to the stress that you as a teacher may feel yourself. It's the same thing, just presenting with different causes. The advice I'd give is to use someone's preferred method of communication. And one of the things that I, I kind of tell people is that when I get really highly stressed, I find verbal communication impossible. And so I ask for my friends and family to use WhatsApp or Messenger or text to give me more time to process what they're saying because I can see their words on, on the, the screen or on the paper or whatever. The words don't change and I, I, can, I can take as long as I need to to, uh, to work out and interpret the advice they're giving to me. And, and also I'll communicate via text or email or WhatsApp because, again, it gives me a better chance to express how I'm feeling than if I'm sort of having to do it through a rushed verbal conversation. Now, obviously, each student is going to have their own communication profile, which goes back to what I said at the start of the pod about everyone being different. But it's really important that at times when you're dealing with students that are highly stressed, um, if you use a communication method that is most appropriate to them. Um, when things are really stressful for students, keep as much predictability as possible. So, for instance, at the time when I uh, was revising for my final exams at university, I made very sure that all of the things I did around that were things that were low stress, high predictability 
and things that I knew I would enjoy. Sometimes if someone is, in, is having a meltdown, then talking about a favorite subject can help even when they're not able to talk about the actual cause of their stress. So some of my very close friends will tell you that at points where I'm having a meltdown or a shutdown, and I'll come to shutdowns in a moment as, as a concept, they'll talk about football, not because the stress that I have has anything to do with football, but simply because it's a way in. It's a means of starting a dialogue with me in a way that I can actually manage before then later on in that conversation or that dialogue going on to, to, to talk about the thing that's actually causing the stress. Sometimes autistic people, when we get really stressed, will not outwardly show that we're feeling that. So if you remember at the start of the pod, I was talking about the difficulties that my parents had um, at parents' evening because they were, ha they were having a child described to them from school that they weren't seeing at home. And when I'm in public places, my reaction to stress is not to meltdown, is not to become visibly aggressive or to shout or to, 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 to do anything that kind of outwardly shows how I'm feeling, but instead I kind of withdraw into myself. I stop listening, seeing, smelling anything that's going on around me. And I almost try and like envelop myself in a metaphorical cocoon. Mm -hmm. And that again can be quite confusing if you're not sure what to spot. And you can think that someone's just really calm and quiet when actually they're going through a highly stressful experience. And the final point I'd make, and perhaps this is the most important one, is that stress is not in itself a bad thing. All of the main achievements of my life, whether academically, socially, uh, or, or in any other field, have involved doing things that are stressful. But I would absolutely not advocate throwing autistic people into as many stressful situations as possible because that won't work. But in order to achieve the things that I have, I've had to experience stress. And therefore, actually, what we need to do is to help autistic people manage the stressful situations that they will inevitably get into as part of life and, and have as good outcomes from those stressful situations as possible. John, I, I find you so inspiring to listen to. I think, you know, you're communicating some really important messages, not just in terms of, you know, how we can better support young people with autism, but how we can better understand ourselves and our own emotions as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying this interview. Um, I just want to um, take it forward slightly to when you left secondary school and... I know that when I used to be a Senko, which was one of the best jobs I've ever done, by the way, you know, it's so deeply fulfilling, but I used to lose sleep over the idea of our students, particularly those with autism, leaving secondary school, leaving all of the routines, the family unit that we've worked really hard to nurture and, and they've become accustomed to. And I know from speaking to you before and from what you've said at the beginning of this podcast that you experienced quite a difficult period after leaving school, which ultimately led to a diagnosis of autism. Would you mind sharing with the listeners that experience? I know it's quite a sensitive one, but, you know, I know that it led to huge amounts of positivity <laughs> for you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it was coming up to uh, my GCSE exams. and although I don't look it, I am so old that actually when you took your GCSEs, you could leave school immediately afterwards. Um, there was no requirement. I, I'm older than you. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> awkward. I'm only joking. Um, Go on. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, it was, it was coming up to GCSE exam time. And this meant for me that for the first time in my life, really, the, the, the predictable routines of school that I'd got used to and coped with were going, which I found, to be honest, very frightening. I wasn't shown how to revise because, again, the perception was that I was a very able student. Whereas the reality, of course, was that actually revision was a completely novel skill. It was something that I'd never done before. And therefore, although many of my teachers didn't think I would need any help, I probably needed more help than many other students to actually work out how to, to kind of plan, a, uh, plan my revision and prepare for my GCSEs. And also there were too many choices. Um, because I didn't have to stay on at school, um, there were lots of kind of potential options. I'd been offered um, a place at a local grammar school. Um, I'd also been offered a place at the local sixth form college. There was also the fact that actually at that point being 16 meant that I didn't have to stay on in education if I didn't want to. And I actually became overwhelmed by that. You can add to this that I was incredibly socially isolated, so I had no friends at school. And so largely all of these issues that I was having were me suffering in silence. And as a result of this, I developed a very severe psychosis. I started to believe and continue to believe for about six months that the people around me didn't exist, um, which was obviously difficult for me, but also incredibly hurtful and challenging for my parents and my wider family. I was admitted to a residential psychiatric hospital and I was an inpatient there for six months. And even after my mental health improved and I was discharged from hospital, I've received outpatient mental health care for the whole of my adult life. Um, so this is not something that's kind of gone away. Um, I'm in a immensely better place now in terms of my mental health than I was as a teenager, but it's still something that plays an active part in my life. And in helping teachers and also caregivers support people who are autistic and also have mental health concerns it's the one time in any of my work to do with autism that I use the word normal because I hate the word normal I think it kind of it's it's used as this kind of divisive term between what I'm not and what other people are but with mental health care I always ask for teachers and parents and carers to look not for someone behaving in a way that's different from what they'd expect of someone of that age but from that individual's own personal normal because for me spending a lot of time by myself spending a lot of time at railway stations um because trains are one of my intense interests um, we'll, we'll talk about that in, more in a minute in terms of how i manage my mental health um and even being highly stressed are actually normal features of my own autism. So whereas in someone else, you might look at those behaviours and think that's a sign of someone experiencing mental ill health. For me, they're actually normal parts of kind of going through daily life. And so instead, what I ask people to do in my context is look for a change from my own personal normal. So if I stop eating or start overeating, or if I withdraw completely from my social life, you know, I don't go out every day or even every week necessarily, but if I'm withdrawing completely and not speaking to anyone or going out with anyone at all, um, or if I stop washing altogether, remember that I've been a student for, for most of the last decade. If we 
if, if we decided we needed to treat everyone that turned up for a 9am lecture without having had a shower, you'd have a pretty long line of people needing support. We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? We would, we would. Um, oh, if my mood is consistently low, if I'm, if I'm of really low mood for, for, for days and weeks on end, those are signs that my mental health is suffering. Whereas if you just look and compare me to kind of a typical person of my own age, you might get the impression that there's something wrong, whereas actually it's just me doing what I normally do. Mm. And I think central to my own mental well-being are my intense interests. Um, and these are different for each autistic individual. My own, one I've already spoken about, which is uh, trains. Uh, I'm also uh, massively into football and also politics. Um, which obviously, as, you've, as I've previously said, is the subject that I studied at university. They're different for each person. So obviously not all the same as me. They're different from hobbies. So when I think of a hobby, I think of my dad who, who golfs once a week. Um, he plays golf and he really enjoys it. It's nice for him to, to get out on the course with his mates. But if he wakes up on the morning of, of, of the day he's meant to be playing and it's pouring with rain and there's 50 mile an hour winds and his mates phone up and say, you know what, Dave, should we cancel this week and try again with the weather later on? He'll cope. It's not such an integral part of his life that he won't be able to, to kind of find a way to do something else. It won't cause a huge amount of stress or emotional discomfort. Whereas for a lot of autistic people, our intense interests can at times be the most important things in our lives. Can they I, don't. Sorry, go on. No, sorry to interrupt, John. I just thought it might be interesting for you to explain to the listeners why you refer to them as intense interests. So sometimes these sorts of things can be mistaken as obsessions. Yeah. Like why, why do you choose to use the language intense interests instead? Because I actually think that it can be dangerous and often counterproductive if we look at them as obsessions. Mm -hmm. When I think of an obsession, I kind of think of someone that maybe has to wash their hands constantly to, to stop themselves feeling unclean or a person that might have to open and shut a door 10 times before they felt able to walk through it. I regard those as obsessions because they don't bring any pleasure or they are a, a simply sort of responses designed to reduce anxiety. And intense interests, also one of their key roles in the lives of autistic people is to reduce anxiety. But they're also an incredible source of pleasure and enjoyment in a way that obsessions aren't. Um, as I said, they, they don't need to have an instrumental purpose. They can. I mean, obviously, my intense interest in politics led to the, it being the subject that I chose to study at degree level at university, but they don't have to. Um, as I said, they can be a huge source of predictability and comfort. And that's, that's the role I was speaking about a moment ago in terms of reducing stress and anxiety. They can also be the best and sometimes the only means of motivation. And this, again, can be quite difficult for, for teaching staff and for parents because often you kind of want your relationship with the child, whether that's as, a, as an educator or, or as a parent, to be the thing that's, or one of the things that's kind of pushing that child on towards achieving um, their goals in life or in their studies. But at times for autistic people, that, that level of kind of emotional involvement can be too much. And so it's actually easier, and, and I absolutely would, would admit that I do this in my own life at times, it's easier to be motivated by access to intense interest because often that's more predictable. You know, human emotions to me, although I'm much better at, at, at coping with them, are still challenging. Whereas I know that if I buy a train ticket 
or a football magazine or a politics magazine. I, I kind of know roughly the the level and the the breadth of the interaction that I'm going to have with those interests, and therefore, because it's more predictable, it can be a better source of motivation. Um, and so, the way that I kind of look at approaching that, if I was a parent or a teacher, is to is to think of kind of a baseline of of access to intense interests, which will never be taken away, which will they will always be able to to engage with, and then an ability to earn more either through good work. Um, or, 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 or whatever else because one of the things i see sometimes people doing which i think is incredibly counterproductive is threatening to take someone's access to their intense interests or a favorite object away from them because of bad behavior and if that happens the most likely outcome is that you're going to further increase the stress and anxiety of that of that pupil because that access to that preferred object or that favorite activity that video game or whatever that's often the thing the one i almost refer to it's kind of the island of predictability that's keeping them going through a very challenging day of of, of lessons and of, of social interactions at school so you know keeping a certain amount of intense interest time kind of protected and, and, and never changing actually can be really helpful in, in, in kind of structuring a student's day to help them get through the stressful, unpredictable things, which are inevitably part of, of a child's day going through school. I think that's such an important mind shift, actually, thinking of these intense interests as, like you said, islands of predictability. I can really relate to that. I think sometimes they're treated as mere distractions. Um, rather than part of that coping strategy and like you said giving that sense of normality to a day that perhaps isn't following the predictable pattern they'd expected absolutely um i i i agree and i i think i think if we're not careful as as teachers or as as carers we can get into a mindset of well it's letting them win it's letting the bad behavior win and I think that becomes really counterproductive because then what you're doing is taking away the thing that's most likely to reduce someone's stress. Yeah. You know, most autistic people, in fact, I think pretty much every context that I've ever been in with autistic people, the meltdown or shutdown is not happening because of a desire to be disruptive mm -hmm. or a desire to behave badly. It's to do with stress and anxiety becoming unmanageable. Yeah. And therefore, the, the last thing you want to do in that context is pile even more stress on top of a situation that's already bubbling over. Yeah, that makes sense. OK, let's move forward then to university. So you've already alluded to the fact that you had a first attempt at university and then a more, um, well, massively successful second attempt. And I've heard you speak before about this idea of giving people freedom to fail. Can you explore that idea in the context of your experiences of university? So pretty much as soon as I started my access course, uh, which took place at my local college, I decided that I wanted to study away from home when I went to university. Um, and after finishing uh, my access course, I went uh, and moved away from home in, into halls of residence at the University of Manchester. Um, and these were first year halls. The majority of people there were 18 um, and I was 28. And I found the process of living in halls 
at the same time as trying to cope with degree level work at university to be absolutely overwhelming. Mm. Um, and this led to a kind of resurgence or a reemergence of mental health symptoms that I hadn't had for, for, for five, six, seven years previously. Um, and my health deteriorated to the point that by December of my first semester at Manchester, I had to make the very painful, in fact, the most difficult decision I've made in my life um, to abandon my studies there and return home. However, some of the people that I met while I was studying in Manchester are now my closest friends. And for that reason, although I use this as kind of an example of, of kind of my, my belief in what I call the freedom to fail. I don't in any way regard my time in Manchester as a failure. It was a, a really important and meaningful part of my life um, that's led to, to a huge number of wonderful experiences with the friends that I've made there over the past seven or eight years. Um, and so for that reason, I don't regard what happened in Manchester as a failure, although I do use it, um, I, I do reflect on it as something that, that that I think of as very important in in advising parents and teachers, and quite simply, that's that. Actually, where it's possible, I think we need to allow autistic people to make their own path. Mm. If my parents were honest, and and they've they've pretty much told me this since, um, they they knew that I wasn't going to be able to 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 be able to to kind of cope with living away from home for the three years it would have taken to get an undergraduate degree at Manchester. Mm. But they also realised that if they told me that, if they tried to discourage me, then it would have always left kind of unanswered questions in my head that actually it would have created a lot of frustration in me. And to be honest, I'd probably have gone anyway. Yeah. Um, and so even though I think, well, I know that they had, a, they had huge misgivings, they unceasingly supported me to try and make it work which was difficult for them um, mm -hmm. and affected their mental health as well as mine but I do think it's really important that when we're trying to support autistic people through whatever transition or change um, they may be going through that we we have their own wishes front and center and that we try everything we can to make it happen even if even if our instinct is to think actually this isn't going to work Mm. yeah and I, th I think sometimes as well you are so articulate about your needs and you have a really strong understanding of those I know you haven't always had that but you have that now I think yeah. sometimes as teachers and parents we can automatically get into that mindset of uh, being very well-meaning and wanting to protect that person and really trying to influence their decision making but you've really got me thinking there with that example about the importance of giving people the time and the space to try things that aren't always going to work. There's, there's nothing more natural as a parent, as a teacher, than, than to want to protect the children, your children that you're, you're, you're bringing up, supporting. But sometimes you do need to take a step back and actually think that, that what that child wants is, is really important for them. And that actually, as much as is possible, you need to be working to help them achieve the things that they want, even if it isn't the path that you would choose for them or for yourself. Yeah. 
it's an important message to us all, John. Okay, I just want to um, talk a little bit about life in lockdown for people and COVID-19. And, you know, it's been extremely difficult for many people, but, but why and how do you think it's particularly difficult for people with autism? I mean, the, 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 the first thing that I'd say to that is that, again, uh, to use my, my favourite kind of phrase, everyone's different. So... I wouldn't necessarily want to, to say that it's been difficult for every single autistic person. In fact, having spoken to, to, other, to some people who are involved in education, for, for some parents and for some autistic people, life in lockdown has actually been easier yeah. than, than kind of inverted commas real life. Um, and I think as educators, we, we, we need to be reflecting on that and thinking about why it is that essentially being locked down for some students has been better than being in school in terms of the difficulties that it's presented for, for for autistic people and again not speaking for everyone by any means but just thinking of kind of the common issues you've got the physical changes mm. so the idea of social distancing now for some autistic people who who hate touch who don't like handshaking or hugs it's probably been better in yeah. some ways actually it's now socially unacceptable to hug and, and, and handshake with people that you don't live with or that aren't in your household. There's also things like mask wearing, which, as has been well documented in the news, there are a lot of autistic people that have very profound sensory difficulties mm. with wearing a mask. There's the break to the routine. Even if that routine itself is something that the child didn't like, you know, the fact that that routine has now stopped can be very difficult. Um, and the fact that you know, especially at the, when, when lockdown was at its most severe, you couldn't see friends or family. Mm -hmm. um, shops and leisure facilities were closed. And again, for some autistic people, the gym, the local shop, um, the local library or museum plays an enormously important part in their daily routine and how they, they stay mentally well. And then there's the, the effects of the illness itself. Um, you know, some will, will know people that have tested positive. Some will know people who've been very unwell, who may even have died. And there's also the, the inability to engage in intense interests. Mm. And so at the height of lockdown, obviously you were not allowed to, to visit train stations or make railway journeys if, unless that journey was essential. Um, obviously for a period of time, all football stopped. Um, and so for me, it, it kind of, it felt like it shrank and diminished my world. And I'm not remotely going to pretend that I've had it as hard as either the key workers who've had to, 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 to work throughout the crisis or those people who've become seriously ill because touch wood so far, that, that hasn't been an issue for me. Um, but it is a challenge for autistic people. The fact that rules are changing and constantly evolving, I mean, I, I challenge anyone to, to actually be able to, to fully say what, the rules are for their particular area at a given time. Yeah. And it can be really difficult when other people aren't following the rules mm. um, to actually understand why it is. If you're wearing a mask because you think it's the right thing to do, why other people aren't or why certain people are able to do certain things that you're not. So for a whole variety of reasons, it's been very challenging. Mm. Well, um, I'm just going to, not specifically for in terms of COVID necessarily, although, you know, you could touch upon that, but 
What reasonable adjustments would you like to see schools put in place to support children and young people with autism? I don't know if you had like a list of things that you would wish all schools would do. What would be on that list? Um, I like the way you've left the most contentious question till last. Almost. Well, I thought we'd finish on a success. So after that, okay. I'll ask you about yeah. what you're most proud of to date. Okay. Okay. So- got some time to think about that but I just think before that um and I understand that every child is different so for me that's a key takeaway for me that it's so important we get to understand people's autism individual people's but I wondered if there was sort of uh, a want list things you'd love to see okay so here we come with the difficult questions that lots of teachers and support staff are going to have very different views on Um, but here goes do students have to be present in the classroom for every lesson? Ooh, you know, is, it, is it possible? Is it possible for those students who find the classroom environment challenging that some of their lessons will be done remotely, either at home or from another part of the school through Zoom? Um, can work, can work and worksheets be sent ahead of time? Um, does feedback even have to be delivered in person? You know, can is it possible to send feedback? um as writing either through email or text or or as a pod as a little mini podcast itself um and so those would kind of be the main areas that i would think of actually using what we've learned through lockdown to kind of reimagine education for those students for whom traditional methods of learning where you're in person in the classroom where work is presented as it happens um, and where feedback is given through a verbal conversation with the teacher actually are there ways of of doing the kind of the basics of education and learning that that take into account the fact that for some students sensory issues in the classroom are a barrier to learning mm. that for some students actually um having access to work before the lesson can be crucial and it, it's interesting because when I um, was studying at university, one of the reasonable adjustments that um, that was assigned to me, or one of the reasonable adjustments I could take advantage of, was that lecturers had to send me lecture slides and and notes from the lectures the night before, mm. um, and this was invaluable for me because it meant that that I could kind of process the content of the lecture in my own time, mm. rather than having it all delivered in kind of a a fifty minute spoken word block. Um, which many of the other students had, um, and and so I, yeah, absolutely. I think that that that, that kind of teaching that, that that reflecting on things that we've always thought were just givens and that were just the way we do teaching, and actually considering if some of the some of the some of the stuff that we've kind of had to adapt to without you know wanting to necessarily, but as a result of the pandemic, actually, actually whether we can continue some of these 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 ideas um, beyond COVID. Mm, I really like that and actually just something as simple as sharing the learning beforehand would help everyone because it's a huge cognitive demand expecting all children and young people to arrive at a lesson and sometimes think at the conceptual level that is required in order to deepen their knowledge Um, so these reasonable adjustments would be hugely advantageous to lots of children and young people I think you should write a manifesto John for education I'm just I'm just going to put that one out there but I yeah. think it would be great. <laughs> Fa- 
I mean, yeah, definitely. I reckon an afternoon, I could just knock that up. No I problem. Think, I think you could do it in an hour, John. Yeah. Why, why even an hour? Probably 20 minutes. No. I mean, Johnny, I, th- look. I think you've done it on this podcast, in all honesty. Well, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 it's just, it's just kind of been fascinating to me that a lot of the kind of reasonable adjustments that people such as myself have been calling for for years that have always been kind of told can't be delivered suddenly, you know, actually they could be. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways it's actually really, you know, going forward, it's, it's, it's something that, that I'm quite excited by is actually the, the, the fact that we've now shown in the most horrendous of circumstances mm-hmm. that, that, that it is possible to do education in different ways. And hopefully um, that's something which, which we can continue to look at going forward. Definitely. Okay. So you've had many successes, I know, but what is your proudest achievement to date? I mean, obviously at the, when I was talking earlier, I spoke about the, the, the difficulties that I had in kind of making friends and, mm. and friendships when I was at school. And as a child and adolescent, I had no idea how friendship worked. I was bullied and I was isolated. And Really, it wasn't until I began to accept that I was autistic and um, and I was supported to kind of make my first steps in friendship that, that things really began to change. So um, one of my few close friends when I was sort of 11 or 12 years younger than I am now, so I'm talking like the age of 20, set up a circle of friends for me. And this was essentially some of the people that she knew who I would go and kind of have dinner with or do something else with once a month. And I'll be honest, it felt very artificial. It was very artificial and it's nowhere near as good as the real thing, obviously, but it was a great way to kind of start building up the social skills and the confidence that I would then use to kind of form friendships later on in life. Um, I started making friends sort of in my mid to late twenties when working as a social carer and, and doing work um in that kind of field um and that obviously then increased a lot when i met people as a result of going to 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 two different universities and and kind of meeting up with two fabulous um groups of 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 friends um there are certain things that i found very helpful um disclosing and having the confidence to talk about being autistic now it's, it's not the first thing i do you know i don't go up to people and say hi i'm john i'm autistic let's be friends but obviously because that would be a slightly strange way of doing things but i am very confident in speaking about my autism and i find it helps um it helps potential friends understand some of my behaviors why that might seem odd so i spoke earlier in the pod about um about the socializing breaks that i need to take um, and also, you know, as any of my friends who are listening to this will tell you, I am not the friend for you if you want someone that's never going to say the wrong thing in a social situation. So it, it kind of really helps for, for, for my friends and for those people around me to understand that these things don't happen out of malice or of spite, but that there is kind of a condition and, and a reason why that happens. I've also found through the confidence in disclosing my condition to also be much more open about my sexuality so I wasn't out really as a gay man until I was 27 either and or 28 either and I kind of felt I found the process of kind of disclosing one invariably helps with with the process of coming out and 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 disclosing the other so they're kind of mutually reinforcing as kind of ways of me being able to be honest and open about who I am um 
I still suffer from social anxiety. And again, with, with my friends, I've never hidden that from them. They, they understand that, that the issues I have are still very much a part of who I am. But the mates that I have 100% make it worth going through some of that anxiety for the amazing experiences that we have together. Um, and I'd just like to finish really with, with, with the, the comment that for me, friendship is great. It's the humor, the intelligent conversation, the two-way sharing of problems, the emotional support amongst many other things. And I think that, I think that one, of, one of the dangers we can sometimes have is that imagining or, or in that when we're trying to kind of encourage and, and support autistic students to, to, to develop friendships and social skills, we kind of look at it as a one-way thing that, that being able to make friends will benefit the autistic child because of the things that their peers will bring to that friendship. And actually I think that as a closing remark, I, I, I prefer to think of it and I, I hope that my friends would say the same as a two way street that absolutely I take a tremendous amount uh, of comfort of solace from, uh, and of, of, from, from the friends that I have, but also actually for them being friends with me is pretty good as well. I can, I can almost hear them all shaking their heads and thinking, no, John, it's been an absolute nightmare. Um, but no, hope, hopefully, it's been, hopefully it's been good for them too. Um, yeah. Well, it's been great for me and I've taken a tremendous amount from you, John. Um, I find you an incredibly inspiring person and um, your enthusiasm for life is really infectious and I find your story really motivational. So thank you for your candour. Thank you for being so honest, so articulate about your experiences and I'm sure there will be lots of people listening who feel that um you know they've taken a lot away from this podcast so thank you very very much John. Thank you Abby uh for inviting me on um and and yeah it's been something that I've I've really enjoyed and 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 hopefully will have will have helped some of the people listening. I'm sure it will thank you John. Miller's Netter just talking to teachers Podcast Pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast Pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Netter. Just talking to teachers. Um, kindly hosted by Nailers Natters. Really pleased to welcome um, Patrick, o- Patrick Otley O'Connor. Um, I think the... Um, the the head teacher, executive head teacher, that's most thoroughly got behind Teacher Five a Day um, since we first started. So really pleased that you're here, Patrick. It's good good to be here, Martin. Um, so we've got a, f- a few things that we thought we'd have a conversation about today. Um, so we've we've had a little preamble beforehand. I think we've both had experiences in our professional career um, about pre wellbeing and maybe work and and working very hard and not being great positive role models. So I'm interested to find out a little bit about that this afternoon. Um, a little bit about how you've got into wellbeing and how you've used that in your leadership toolkit. Uh, I know that you've been doing that for some time. And then something for leaders to take away that they can use in their schools will be really good. Okay, do you want me to start off then with uh, sort of pre-teacher five a day or pre me really taking my own well-being seriously yeah that'd be a great place to start okay. Chase well again to, to my since starting training 37th year because I did, I did be, I did be, I be ed, but uh, 34th year of teaching and I think for the first probably 13 14 years of that time I was um, I was I thought super dedicated super professional 
I had my own set of keys to get in before the site manager if I wanted to, first in, last out. I was I, I did sport at a high level when I was younger and trained all the time and actually what replaced the sport was work. Yeah. And it was it was driven. Not not although I got to headship fairly early, I wasn't driven by ambition for that as well, because I had my own sort of imposter syndrome regarding the role, but I just enjoyed the work bit and thought that's what I had to do. So I'd find myself in school some days just twiddling my thumbs early morning just because that's what I did. Yeah. And it was like a badge of honour almost. And it wasn't until, that's in January 2000, I moved over, I moved areas uh, uh, to um, into Rochdale as, as a deputy head teacher sort of 20 years ago. And it did coincide with uh, starting a, a completely new family, including uh, stepkids and kids. And then that just helped me look at to sort of reprioritize where I was at and that that was a fairly big quick shift nothing significant happened nothing in terms of I had a nightmare or an epiphany or anything else it's just I I decided what was important I'd always traveled I'd always loved that side of things as well yeah but uh, the other dynamic of the family I really I think and taking that bit as seriously as any other aspect became as as all-consuming and, and and life is all-consuming and life continues to be all-consuming but I've now shifted it so I, I squeeze to fit work into my life balance rather than squeezing the the balance bit into my work. So do you think sort of like pre-2000 there was a different culture in education regarding what was deemed to be you know the best the best way of doing things? Uh, yes we, we were quite in that time, I think I did feel quite. We, we moved from a spirit of cooperation, so sort of competition that we'd got into, into a more spirit of collaboration and, and, and sharing and moving forward. And it, it was pre discussions about mental health. Mental health was still a dirty word, and well being was just a fluffy thing that you might do at some point. I wasn't talking in those terms. I'm talking about me actually uh, walking the talk before the talk had been invented in my own eyes, anyway, or before I knew it. So it became what I was doing. Yeah. So I suppose when I came across Teacher Five a Day, um, I'd already started doing things in my own headships that started 17 years ago. I was already modelling, I think, a lot of the, the benefits or the, the aspects of the Teacher Five a Day or the five ways to well-being. Uh, and, and in fact, for the last, I'd say, over 10 years, I've explicitly used that the, the, the slide that I use that I've, I've talked about quite often, which is so, so a picture of me and my wife and my five kids uh, with the phrase that says, look after yourself first before helping others so we can make the biggest difference for our children. And and that has, remains my, I must say that phrase at least once a day yeah. to somebody in school or somebody on Twitter or somebody that's, um, that's contacted. And when you those. started doing that all those years ago, what was the reaction like? I'm just interested in that. Um, it, Were you a bit of an outlier of, in terms of your views? Say that again. Were you a bit of an outlier in terms of your views? No, I really was. I remember, I remember a tipping point was when I was in a school that was in special measures in 2015, actually, um, in, in Hereford. And we brought that school out very rapidly out of special measures on the back of Teacher Five a Day, in my eyes. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the phrase, I, I managed to squeeze into an officer report probably the the, the phrase I'm, I'm most satisfied from, my next offset is my 21st as right. I had in the schools I've been in. And it's the, the, probably the line I'm most pleased with. It's, it, said, it said that teachers have been, sorry, leaders have been fr- uh, liberated from bureaucratic tasks and teachers have been freed to teach. Yeah. And that's really all based on that principle. Look after yourself first, put your oxygen mask on, then before helping others. 
So then we allow people to see their own mental health and well-being, own it and solve the issues they've got and actually get on and do it. Yeah. And that, I remember at that time there, there was some money becoming available for some joint projects, crossing boundaries of health and um, education yeah. to talk openly about mental health and well-being and use the word mental health without it being the stigma attached mm. to mental health. And it felt really positive time. And I remember saying to colleagues at the time when we were doing it in our schools in our area, because it was working well for us, saying that, look, this is probably only last a year or two until the government decides to put its focus elsewhere. So let's just do it and milk it for what we can now and get as much positivity out of this for our colleagues and students as we can. And I'm really pleased to see that it's become, it's become the trendy thing to talk about and the trendy thing to say. Sadly, yeah. that has allowed some people to pay lip service or anyone to start a company and use the word well-being in it yeah. and think it does the business. So uh, I, I think it's just made it stronger in my eyes. And I think becoming I mean, a couple of years away from retirement, uh, it's just become stronger in me in terms of my moral purpose and why I do what I do and how I do. So in my new school now, day 29 today, and living the well-being dream, I've already we've created a culture that embraces mental health and well-being is really driving forward every single aspect from performance management to um, our talent management process that we've got in, even uh, our, our approach to CPD and the fire drill we had this afternoon. Everything's predicated around how we yeah. look after colleagues who are in the best possible position so they can make the biggest possible difference, how we yeah. speak to each other. Even, and, and, that, and it's not a soft option. It's, it really isn't a soft option well-being. It's about making those difficult decisions about how you're going to spend the millions of pounds schools have got to make a difference for people. So the performance management structure is flipping from a, a, a very data-driven target to yep. a developmental target that's underpinned by the data. Yeah. And just simply people you know, talking now about rather than just talking and filling a form in with data, they're having conversations about their growth and development and their areas for improvement. Yeah. It just, and it, that it, links it, all, it all together, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I, was just, I was just interested in what you said there about the health side of things as well. So the New Economic Foundation, that original report came out 12 years ago now, and mm -hmm. it, was, it was based on 400 scientific papers, and their five ways to well-being is underpinned with a lot of um, theory behind it. it it is interesting that and, and when you look into it health tends to do more aspects i think in terms of trying to support mental health and well-being programs um yeah. i just wonder if it is now now is our time in terms of the education program and working in partnership with people to to help educate young people and adults actually no, it totally is. And again, I was doing this before I'd heard the words teacher five a day or the five ways to well-being, which had been there for much longer beforehand. And it was, as I've said this before, quite openly, it was you, Martin. I'm very thankful for that, that introduced me to that notion. So sort of one of the pedigree Hampshire's and when I went to speak about you'd seen something I'd said and you said it fitted in with what you were talking about. I loved it a bit of research behind what you said. and It just yeah. felt such a match that, that that's why it became I think so easy for me as a leadership style. It's made my leadership so much easier and rewarding and fulfilling. And yes, I'm saying headship easier. Yeah. I'm using those words. It really does. It just flows out from it. And, and uh, I think that the framework and the research behind it is undeniable. And, and actually we, it's not, not even about blurring lines. It's about looking where there is an intersection and, and actually taking that on board and dealing with it. My KPIs from the governing body perspective at the moment, bearing in mind again, day 29, Yep. On day 13 at the governing body meeting, when I met them first properly, this was right on the agenda about how we're operating, about 
the KPIs that we're putting around measuring the impact on mental health and well-being and using some really good and quite sophisticated tools to give them the same priority as KPIs as the other KPIs around staff attendance and yeah. uh, staff uh, all those sort of things as well around understanding where stress points might be in the year. And I think uh, talking with other partners as well. So I've done a few conversations there with the people at the Booper Foundation. I think other mm-hmm. professions have done that and probably done that for 10 years plus as well. You yeah. know, looking after the staff and working hard to make sure that they can perform to the best of their abilities is something that yeah. maybe culturally we haven't done as well as we could do. Yeah, I think there's an appetite out for it. The uh, If I put a tweet out now that talks about something we've done in school, which is what we're doing, as I'm, I'm basically narrating our story yeah. on Twitter, and I'll, that's a collect. You know I'm not a writer, but I can do it in single tweets. Yeah. You know, as in I'll start telling the story of what we do, and each one of those will get maybe 50, 60 comments and a few hundred, three, four hundred likes or whatever else, and people, can we look at this? Can we do the same? Yeah. And actually for me, and you know I it's tongue-in-cheek as well and I've, I've given myself the title of being a well-being supermodel and i've talked to my staff about leaders doing the same again because we need to model behaviors we want to see change yeah. and out there again if i can support or help any head teacher in particular look to change or look to look at a different way of operating because mm. there's a great appetite out there but people are fearful of who's going to come knocking on the door around accountability i don't have a problem per se with ofsted no. I do with I do with leaders' interpretations of what that makes us do. They're just a measuring stick. That's all they are. I'll do what I'm doing. They can come along and measure it or like it or not like it. Yeah. The impact is from what we're doing. But actually, if leaders just focus on those things for Ofsted rather than our moral purpose and why what we do and bring our values based vision to life and then look after colleagues and, and ourselves as we go forwards along that way, it happens. And we make the greatest difference for children doing it that way. And it's what everybody knows. Everybody knows it, but then it gets lost in translation sometimes with this, what can become quite a toxic accountability culture that we can have within some of our schools or within some of our mats or local authorities, etc. Yeah, some, somebody tipped us off onto, the, uh, onto a book called Switch. And yeah, exactly. um, it, it's about doing things when things are hard, basically. But it's got this framework about how you appeal to um, the rational side of people and then the emotional side of it. So rational give them a plan, give them a script, help them understand. And then the emotional side of it, help them um, get small achievable goals and, and feel what it feels like to be part of a, um, like a, an environment that does care. And I think what you do and what you've done in a variety of schools now is appeal to both aspects of the staff, rationally and emotionally, and then mm-hmm. tweak the environment and then rally the herd at the end of it all, you know, get them all going and leave a sustainable model. Yeah. And again, it's, it's around actually. I physically get staff to do this to point north. Yeah, we all point north. They do it with their eyes closed first of all. Everyone points every direction. I'll then say, I'll then get my compass out and point north. We all point the same direction, right? And then close your eyes. Let's do it again. They point north and they all point in the same direction. Of course they do. Well, we have to say what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, and then yeah. keep pointing ourselves in that direction. Yeah, and you become what you repeatedly repeatedly do. Yeah. So the focus there. So the, it's very simple again, and it's just one aspect, but it's a lovely aspect for me. We have a, a briefing, two briefings a week. One's very business oriented, one's a real celebration of what colleagues are doing and students are doing. And in that briefing, it always finishes with a, a, um, a nominations for staff, by staff, for someone who's made a positive difference to their mental health and well being. Yeah. And we set off, and there were 20, 30 people in the first week or two. 
we did it yesterday, 72 nominations, just a random, everyone's name goes up on a star, random wheel goes round, pick someone's name out, they win a box of chocolates. It's yeah. just, it's not, but it's actually, it just means something to that they're able to be acknowledged and be, um, and celebrate what you've done for people, but what also you're doing for people. Mm. And, and, and it, 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 it just, my staff are working so hard. I mean, really, really hard. But, and, 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 and the stresses that go along with that. It's, yeah. it's not, this is not utopian. It's still a real school with real yeah. issues and kids, kids will kick off or there'll be a fallout here or there'll be whatever, or, you know, kids upset. But everything's predicated around how we respect and look after each other. Mm. And, and actually, most schools, if you look at the values-based visions for most schools, the same here, not changed any of the words in that. No. It's just we're, we're applying it consistently towards a well-being model. Yeah. And, and that, that, if we take what we do for that, for the students, we take what we do for the staff and make it come alive, it just becomes a much nicer place to be. It's, it's the things we want to happen in our schools. It's not a magic formula. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a real simplification of doing less better. I don't mean doing less better, I mean doing less. Yeah. Better. Yeah. In terms of your first interest then, so yeah. we've, we've gone back in time to 20 odd years and you're thinking about prioritising things. What, what, were the, what were the, if you're a new head now and you're just trying to get somebody to think differently, what types of things would you say to the, the 20 year old, 20, 20 younger Patrick Otley O'Connor? Um, I, I'd probably the, 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 the speech I do on the first day when I go into a new school and the, the headship roles that I do currently where I go in for either a year or for two years in a, either a turnaround or a group of schools or a turnaround situation to try and build sustainable things. So that what I'll do there is I'll talk about look after yourself first before helping others so you make the biggest difference. It's the thing. So what, what, what turns you on, Patrick? What is it that's your thing that you're not doing? Because when I ask colleagues, I'll say, think of what when you were your younger self, and you're out canoeing or rock climbing or walking on a hill or reading every day or mm-hmm. what's the thing that you used to do loads that you're not doing much of and everyone can always pick something out right what's stopping you if that's what you want to do now what's stopping you from doing that yeah. it's always time okay how can we create and i can't find time i've got too much you to know let's just find a spot for that to happen yeah and once you start to do that it liberates people mm. and people can take ownership and it's people seeing it and owning it and doing something about it if 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 People try and find time, it won't work. If no. you try and do something, it won't work. They need to plan. You wouldn't dream of starting a new term without having a plan for what you're going to do. But loads of people skid to a halt at a weekend or at a holiday without a plan of what they're going to do. Even if that plan is, I'm going to vegetate for the first weekend and watch Netflix. Yeah. That's a plan. Yeah, yeah. Knowing, what, knowing what you're doing rather than getting three or four days into a holiday and then going, right, what am I going to do? And, and you wouldn't dream of starting a term like that. But again, you can do that but if that's what you've thought to do. Yeah. So I think the, the, see, the see it, own it, do it mantra that you use, where, where's that from then? Right, there's, there's a, the, a guy, oh, a book called The Oz Principles. It's as naff as it sounds, Oz as in Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And it's, it's having the, the, uh, the courage of the lion to see things as they really are. So it's seeing things from your own perspective and the perspective of others. Yeah. It's owning it. Uh, and that's that's really having the heart then of the tin man to own it, and that's quite a brave thing to do. It's my problem, not blaming people and breaking that victim cycle, but yeah. knowing that it's your problem to solve. And the wisdom of the scarecrow to solve the issues and think it around. Now, sometimes colleagues need help with this, so that's where coaching can be useful. And the final one, of course, hashtag 10% braver women, Ed. Uh, the final one is Dorothy. 
who has the wherewithal to actually make it happen and do something about it. So it's see it, own it, solve it, do it. And actually you put that mantra to most things, it's how you can create and solve an issue. So we use that as a mantra really to put to our owning, seeing, owning and, and, and solving our own well-being issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wednesday afternoons, we've got to put our new CPD programme in place. Again, bearing in mind day 29, our CPD programme, pro, change things around. Um, students on a Wednesday afternoon are home early. We have two hours of training that we can put together. Every third week is yeah. an hour of training. And then the normal finish time, which will be for the students of 10 past three, directed time from 10 past three to 10 past four, the directed time is staff must leave, leave site within 10 minutes from then. They must do something that supports their mental health and well-being. So for some, I had staff running out last night with the training gear on to go for a run. I had staff running out to go to the gym, staff walking to go places. One, I spoke to somebody on break duty today, one woman went home and sorted out her utility room that had just been bugging her yeah. so before her kids came home. They did that. Other staff were sprinting out to go and pick up the kids from school. Every third Wednesday, people know they've got that time just to show that we can do it. And my, my, my thing to other people then is pick one night in the week then when you might have a meeting or might be doing a club or you might be doing whatever else where you can that night do something for yourself as well so it's not just once every three weeks. And I'm, I'm, I've, that, that's, that's a big chunk of our CPD time, but I want to invest to say that's what we're doing. How and do you get those people that said, you know, that's not for me because I want to be in school and I want to be doing no, my emails? And... No, they can, be, they can be in school on the other days. They can go home and work if they choose to do so, but that's directed yeah. time at that time. I want them to focus on something for them in school time yeah. for themselves. It's, I want them to do that. It could be, I've got a couple of people doing master's degrees and they're using that time to study. Yeah. But what we don't do is we don't meet, we don't do other things. I'm, I'm actually make, I'm, I'm making people. One person's well-being dream is another person's well-being nightmare. Yeah. So I get that. But for that hour, I want people to do what it is that's their dream, that's their idea, that's their whatever. Yeah. Now I can't. I'm. I'm not going to police it to the extent. I mean, I send one whole school and one one whole school me email myself. Yeah. Uh, every three weeks, I don't do them. And it's yesterday saying it's now ten minutes past kicking out time. Why are you Why are you reading this email? Go home. Yeah. For anyone, for anyone that was in the building to say off you go. But it, it was it's to make a point. But the conversations that's starting about that like, on its own that's nothing. But that along with the change in uh, developmental performance management, the talent management process, which I could talk to you about, which I'm really, really pleased about how it's been embraced here. The clarity of role and structure of what people's jobs are and the clarity yeah. of communication around that. The How we speak to each other and teaching people. I'm, this part of the session I'm doing this afternoon with a group of colleagues is how to have difficult conversations with each other because um, any, any high-performing team is built on trust. Yeah. And, and actually... The, the big thing that's missing quite often is conflict. You need healthy conflict. So actually for to improve people's well-beings, I'm teaching them how to have conflict with each, each other. It's a really serious, important point so that we can be open and honest and build that trust in each other and colleagues so we can do the job that we need to be able to do. Yeah. I was just, well-being is not a soft option. No. I was, I was thinking as well in terms of the framework that the Youth Sports Trust offers in terms of their well schools work. So mm-hmm. they, they have three pillars. So it's well-led, well-prepared and well-equipped. And then that helps the, the, the whole fulfil their potential and you develop culture and climate off the back of it. And you, you, I think that that's their pilot project, their lives in September. It feels like you've been part of the sort of early adopters that have been at it for five years plus in terms of develop, developing a, a positive culture. And then yeah. 
and then being well led and well prepared and well equipped to help the students really yeah i i, I perhaps ought to I, I don't collect badges uh as in i don't i've, I've not uh, those sort of things you're talking about are great as frameworks. There are some lovely frameworks out there, like the one through Carnegie. Uh, Steve Waters does a, a good one through the Teach Well Alliance. There's a variety of really good models out there that we yeah. use. They're only as good, though, as, 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 as audit tools as what you do with it. So yeah. it's listening, listening, absolutely hearing what you need to do and then putting those changes in place. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure if I wanted to go for any of those awards or marks, we could do those things. And that's not an arrogance there. No. I just... I just have not chosen to do so yet um, in, in what we do and perhaps ought to do because we can always learn. There are new things uh, that I can pick up from those. I do keep myself abreast of what's going on. I, I'm aware of what's in those there, yeah. uh, but I've just not gone through those processes. The, but The, the well skills one is an interesting one for me because it's about everybody getting together and sharing the resource. So it's yeah. teacher-led as opposed to, um, I don't know, top-down directive yeah um, this, so if, if yeah. you haven't had a look i would i would recommend a look at that no i know i have i have absolutely but the the uh and, 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 and you learn from those things and that's actually when i provide i quite i do quite a lot of coaching uh and a lot of support i've had teachers of, of trust in fact i helped develop uh for the uh, star academies or star institute their uh, mpqel the executive leaders program they asked me to write a module on creating a culture of uh, well-being across the schools yeah. Which we do as part of that pro, which is wonderful that trusts are doing that level of work and do that in schools and, and, and so on. But when, when you're accessing that level, you, you're, you're almost preaching to the converted in that they're the people that are wanting to adopt and go forwards. I, I, increasingly, I've got staff, teaching staff, or middle leaders, or even other senior leaders, where there's not been the buy in from the senior staff uh, that, that causes a, um, their own to manage upwards. Yeah. And that's much more difficult in doing that because if you're yeah. going to create a culture, it needs to be through everything and not just, I'm not saying we shouldn't do these, but not just the box of chocolates, not just the quizzes that staff organize and not just those things. Some people do feel as though they've only got those little bits of life rafts that they can offer themselves mm. to get small bits going within school. And, and there's a, there's a quite a void there in some schools. So we still support, I still support colleagues to do that because anything's better than nothing in terms of encouraging people to, uh, uh, to, to look after themselves but they, they tend to be how to survive rather than how to thrive yeah and if it becomes a culture then you can thrive in that the survival is quite often the ones where people are having to do it themselves for themselves because it's not within school i don't know about you but i'm hoping soonish maybe in the next six months 12 months there might be enough voices around where there is a collective voice in education that says you know let's get our kpis to be based around mental health and well-being and, and yeah. the whole narrative changes altogether. Yeah, well, you better hurry up, Martin, because I've, I've only got... <laughs> two year years now. left. Well, no, it's not two years now. It's now one year and about 160, <laughs> 165 days because uh, I've, that's in September 2022. I shall be playing and doing other things and loving yeah. the travel and all those things as well. But I, I, it is my big hope. And I'm, I'm sure even though I, I'm stopping, I'll continue to support colleagues in those ways and, and banging a drummer around those things. So last uh, last five minutes then, Pat. Um, okay. The schools that you've worked in, so we've talked about well-being not being fluffy and we've talked yeah. about um, well-being being a tool for school improvement. If you were putting your hard-edge leadership conversation now, what, what's been the impact in terms of um, performance, outcomes, 
cost savings in terms of you embracing Teacher Five a Day and all of the wellbeing work that you've done in the schools that you, you've worked in? Um, not one school that I've worked in that we've done this modelling with, and particularly the so if you like the rural schools gone into where they've been struggling yep. in the last ten in the last well, seven eight years. In fact, as I've been doing this sort of work I do now, not one of those schools has gone backwards in an Ofsted report. And there's some sustainably good schools within there now that have got to good, and that's where they've stayed or, or continued. Yeah. Uh, within that good, good sustainable practice that's been put in place, improved performance for children, reduction in needs, any measure you want to look at, have improved in those schools. Now that's not down to me. That's down to the culture and that's the new heads that we've appointed and put in place there. Yeah. Because it's what the, the the approach also around well-being shouldn't be predicated on a hero model well it should oh. be not not on the head being the hero but the head being a chief hero maker and the other leaders then being the hero makers and lifting other people and teacher five a day lends itself so well to uh, that, that phrase of we, we rise by lifting others yeah it really is that people are putting the ladder down to help people up um, and and um, that i think that those sort of cultures that have been created as it as it as it goes forward and, and yeah um I think in terms of the, the personal impact, um, what I'm pleased about now is many people who've been on leadership courses that I've done, in particular middle leaders who are now senior leaders or senior leaders who are now head teachers who are actually taking this into their own schools. And that, that gives me so much joy. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've now, I'm now just over 50 people uh, who I've coached and worked with uh, really directly who will become head teachers now. They've either been my deputies yeah, there was significant amounts of those in schools, or other people who have spent significant time coaching, who are now in headship roles, who who, who embrace this sort of role, and and in terms of legacy, it will only be seen in years to come. The people that yeah that I leave behind in those ways, and I'm probably measuring that now more in staff than student outcomes. I mean, my my oldest ex pupils are turning 51 this year. Yeah. The difference between when you start teaching and so on is you've got a whole raft of children coming behind and 10,000 plus, I'm sure, that have been in my schools uh, over time. Uh, and, and yes, it is about the children. But actually, for me, the staff who are then perpetuating and keeping things going, Yeah, that, that, that's the bit I'm, I'm looking that, forward to. That ripple time. effect, yeah. No, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? And mm. last point then, if there were three things that you would... Um, give tips to any teachers so new teachers um, middle leaders senior leaders what would your top three tips be for looking after yourself so you can look after others all right well the first thing is live by the look after yourself first before helping others you make the biggest difference yeah i'd, I'd also say um see own solve and do something about your own issues yeah use support and coaching and do it in those ways yeah and um a final one might sound a bit naff actually but actually i think we just need to be kinder to ourselves individually ourselves but also kinder to each other and be more forgiving the, the world's become a bit polarized you're either right or you're wrong yeah uh, so we shouldn't do that and we shouldn't if people are getting it wrong in terms of we should allow people then chance to, to grow and develop and everything else and give people second, third, fourth chances to improve, to get better. So just, just be kinder per se. Yeah. So look That's... after yourself and others, develop your talent by seeing and solving and doing and just be kind. That's magic that, mate. 
So I'm guessing this is probably the first time that we'll have a conversation for the podcast, but you might you might come back in series two, three, and four maybe for some updated conversations. Yeah, I shall ring you from the Seychelles and <laughs> from from top of Mount Everest. So we're, we're, we're at the bottom of the sea, wherever I am, I can do that in the future. But absolutely delighted to see the, the journey continue and go from strength to strength. It, it was interesting as well. Um, so with with you helping out on the Diary Toolkit project um, that we're doing, you, you've basically done this type of presentation for other people in a closed group. And they were so keen to get your views after, after listening. To, and you only had. It was 20 minutes then, wasn't it? So it was, it was a shorter yeah. amount of time. Um, so you very kindly put some pens to paper this time. And I've, I've got a link in my most uh, recent blog that I've written, uh, your yeah. ideas about creating a culture of teacher five a day in an organization. So yeah. if people do want to have a look at that, the blog title was Half Time Teacher Five a Day Diary Toolkit Collaboration. And Patrick's thoughts are at the end of that one. But thank you very much, mate. Much appreciated. I know we've squeezed this in between um, the day job. Um, so you've got yes. bits to do and I've got bits to do now. Um, yeah, but just done the fire drill, just doing some staff training <laughs> after school. And we've we've got our open evening now as well. So I've got a short, short groups of families around in some masks in a minute. So that'll be a, a fun way to spend the next couple of hours. Can I just say thank you very much as well, mate? It's an absolute honour to, to say that you're my mate now, first of all, but then also to have the um experience of listening to you and and talking with you and gaining that experience it's a it's a real pleasure and i I hope that everybody enjoys this this second podcast well thanks very much you're welcome it's a bromance martin (laughs) see you later bye cheers bye just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at pna 1977 on twitter just talking to teachers 